We are going to be again today in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, our passage today is 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. And, uh, does, oh, first, does anybody need uh, discussion questions? Yeah, and one to Timothy back, back there as well. And this Lynn needs a copy. You've got your own copy, right? Yeah, that's all right. Okay. Anybody else need? All right. Um, just a, a caveat. Uh, when I printed the uh, discussion questions, um, I had you know, questions one, two, and three. And I, I did a copy and paste in Microsoft Word. And they were kind enough to uh, change the numbers for, on the second half to four through six. So some of you have one through three, some of you have four through six. The questions are the same. So uh, for discussion, yes, yes, thank you very much. So for the discussion leaders, who are my discussion leaders? Alec, you might get it by default. Jason, he's one of our discussion leaders. Yeah, there we are. Um, Just, I was telling the group, the questions, um, Microsoft Word autocorrected the numbers. When I when I did a copy and paste, yes. it changes one through three to four through six. So um, just be aware of that when you're doing the discussion questions. Uh, okay, First Peter chapter one verses ten through twelve. We'll read the passage and then we'll pray. First Peter one ten. As to this salvation. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to to study it, to look into it, to to teach it, to read it. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that uh, you've allowed us to know you through your word. Thank you that you've given us your spirit to indwell us, to help us to understand uh, what you've written in your word. Pray that you would, uh, that your spirit would fill this time, fill this, these people, uh, that we would understand exactly what you have for us today, that your word would accomplish its intended purpose for this hour. We pray your blessing on the, uh, the service, the worship service going on now, even in the sanctuary that uh, your name would be praised and glorified there. We pray above all that throughout this place uh, and around the world even, as your word is taught and preached, that you would be glorified above all things. We'll give you the praise and glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, First Peter 1.10. The passage before us today really uh, forces, forces us to take a look back at, uh, at the preceding verses as to this salvation. So, uh, looking back, uh, let me first start out by uh, thanking 
uh, Mark Stevenson and Thomas Kiefer for their outstanding lessons the last two weeks, which I'm planning to freely plagiarize today uh, as necessary, especially here at the beginning of the lesson. Uh, Verse 10 starts, as to this salvation. Now, the immediate context uh, of this, of course, refers back to verse 9, which concludes the salvation of your souls. But the greater context of salvation here uh, takes us all the way back to verse 3. First uh, Peter 1, 3 starts, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So uh, that's really the first direct reference to salvation, to the salvation that Peter is encouraging his audience to embrace. Remember, two weeks ago, Mark uh, told us about that living hope, the lively hope brought to life by God himself, the earnest expectation, the confidence in a future event, uh, according to Webster, that highest degree of well-founded expectation of good based on God's gracious promises. That's that living hope. So in all honesty, we have to admit there is no greater good that we can possibly expect or imagine beyond living eternally in the very presence of God, so, which we will experience because of the salvation of our souls. Now verse 4 expands on this living hope, describing it as an inheritance, imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, saying that uh, living hope to obtain an inheritance Of course, an inheritance is something that is set apart for an heir, usually a child or some other beneficiary, identified in the will of the owner of some estate or property. Uh, Of course, we've seen this in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, that we are, as Christians, as saved uh, individuals, that we are indeed heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ because we have been adopted into the family of God so our inheritance is sure. Uh, we saw this when we went through the book of Galatians as well, how our status has changed from slaves to sons, Galatians 4.7. And if a son, then an heir through the gracious act of God. Seems like we talk about this a lot here at Cornerstone, but the Bible talks about it a lot, so we should as well. Uh, and for those of us who are part of God's family, it should bring us unceasing and ever-increasing joy, assurance, and confidence. So we're going to keep talking about it, right? So uh, now getting back to verse to First Peter. Uh, verse 5, uh, Peter actually uses the term salvation for the first time. Uh, uh, quick back to verse 4, talking about the inheritance that is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So in three different verses, we have three different descriptions of what is essentially the same kind of same thing. Uh, verse 3, a living hope. Verse 4, an inheritance. And verse 5, a salvation. This is the salvation that Peter is referring to in our passage in verse 10, as to this salvation. Uh, now, Thomas... Uh, Kiefer also talked about this salvation last week, as we already observed in verse 9, obtaining 
as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We see here again the grand theme of the gospel. Salvation by grace through faith. Same thing we've been studying Sunday nights in Romans, as well as our previous Sunday school study, uh, the survey of Galatians. Uh, Verse 8 in 1 Peter 1 talks about the object of our faith, the unseen Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Now, Peter commends the believers in Asia Minor for the genuineness of their love for Christ. I'm going to steal a quote Pastor Bill used a couple of months ago from Thomas Vincent. He's an English Puritan preacher and author, a contemporary of John Owen, another great Puritan theologian. Uh, This quote is from Vincent's book, The True Christian's Love to the Unseen Christ. And the quote... The life of Christianity consists very much in our love to Christ. Without love to Christ, we are as much without spiritual life as a carcass, when the soul is fled from it, is without natural life. Faith without love to Christ is a dead faith. And a professor, that is, one who professes Christ with his mouth, a professor without love to Christ is a dead professor, dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. Without love to Christ, we may have the name of Christians, but we are wholly without the nature of Christians. We may have the form of godliness, but are wholly without the power of godliness. Give me your heart is the language of God to all people, and give me your love is the language of Christ to all his disciples, end quote. Thomas Vincent, the true Christian's love to the unseen Christ. So Peter commends his audience here for their love to Christ, but he doesn't restrict his comment there in verse 8 to love. He also stresses the joy, the unspeakable, un- the matchless, indescribable joy we have as believers. Verse 8, because we believe in him, we greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Again, like Thomas said last week, this joy can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit, as described in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. I'm sure every one of us can, can quote that, but uh, it's worth, worth quoting. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, right there at the top two. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So we see here in in this verse, verse 8, two specific elements of the fruit of the Spirit-filled Christian's life, that love for Christ and the inexpressible, indescribable joy. So now keep in mind, Peter is commending these believers for their faith, their love, their joy, while these folks are going through some fairly significant persecution. This, is, again, is the time of Nero, uh, where persecution uh, of Christianity is uh, the official government policy. So they're going through it. Uh, also keep in mind as well that Peter's letter was addressed back in verse 2 to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So these are, some of these are the same folks that Paul wrote his epistle to the Galatians to. Apparently, 
judging by uh, Peter's uh, language here, uh, they listened to Paul's admonitions against following false teachers because, as we said, Peter commends them for their faith, their love, and their joy. And again, he reminds them of the ultimate result in verse 9, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Which brings us to our passage for this morning, verses 10 through 12, 1 Peter 1, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. We've talked about salvation, what it is, our living hope, our inheritance. Now let's take a closer look about at what Peter says about it. The title of the lesson is Salvation's Greatness. And we see in these three verses four objective observers who verify and validate the greatness of our salvation. These four observers are the Old Testament prophets, the Holy Spirit, the apostles, and finally, the angels. All of these testify to just how great, how awesome, how wonderful our salvation is. So, first, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Now, these, of course, are the prophets, uh, the authors of the Old Testament, from Moses to Malachi. Keep in mind, also, that, that prophets, uh, especially in the, in the New Testament definition, prophets are, include those who foretell, as well as those who foretell. They're, they're the ones who speak the truth of the Scripture, as well as those who prophesy, who make predictions about the future. Uh, we th- usually think of the Old Testament, we think of Old Testament prophets, uh, we think of those uh, who, the authors of the books of prophecy from Isaiah to Malachi, and those are definitely included amongst these uh, because they clearly prophesied, as it says in verse 10, of the grace that would come. Um, but the great men of God who didn't necessarily have their name as the title of one of the books of the major minor prophets, they're still included as well as prophets as in this uh, category of prophets. Uh, men like Noah, Moses, David, they're definitely honored and recognized as prophets. They understood the grace of God. Even the way, all the way back in Genesis, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8 says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor is also translated grace. Noah was a sinner, as all men are, and God would not have been unjust if he had included Noah and his family in with the rest who were destroyed by the flood, the rest of humanity. But in his sovereign plan, which is, again, established before the foundation of the world, God gave Noah grace. Along with that grace, of course, he gave him the task of building an ark to preserve human and animal life. Noah, therefore, understood the concept of grace. He'd been given it. Moses understood grace. God explained it to him in Exodus 33.19, which is quoted in Romans 9.15, more uh, uh, describing God's sovereignty, but it also explains grace. I will, uh, Exodus 33.19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So God's grace is explained to Moses there. Uh, The Old Testament saints were saved the same way we are, by God's grace through faith, because they believed God. Uh, Genesis 12 talks about that. Abraham believed God, 
It was counted to him as righteousness. David gives another classic example of how well he understood the grace of God. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, chapter 11 talks about his uh, sin, how he uh, saw Bathsheba um, bathing, lusted after her, uh, took her in uh, adultery. Um, she conceived a child. He tried to cover it up by having uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, killed in battle. But uh, in, chapter, in uh, 2 Samuel 12, of course, um, the prophet Nathan confronts David over his sin, and uh, he repents. He recognizes, yes, I have messed up beyond all human understanding, but he repents, and he begs God for forgiveness. Uh, and after this infant son is born, uh, God strikes this son. He's taken ill, uh, and David is weeping. Uh, he's praying. He's uh, fasting to uh, the God, asking God to spare this baby. But uh, God, in his sovereignty, says no, that, and the, the baby died. Uh, so his servants, of course, were wondering, okay, how, how are we going to tell him that his baby has died? They finally, they, David saw them talking amongst themselves and understood, okay, this baby's passed away. But he got up, he stopped fasting, he stopped weeping. And in verse 22 of Second Samuel 12, David told his servants, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me, that the child may live. So he understood that the child, for whom David was fasting and weeping, was entirely under God's sovereign providence. And this child's death was David's punishment, not the child's punishment. Uh, just as an aside, uh, to demonstrate how well David understood the concept of personal salvation, um, it says, when the infant child died, David rose from his fasting and weeping. He sat and ate. Um, but, in contrast, when Absalom died in his rebellion against the father, against his father David, it says David mourned bitterly, 2 Samuel 18 and 33, when he was informed of Absalom's death. The king, David, was moved deeply and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. This is after Absalom died. And thus, as he said, he, thus he said as he walked, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Completely different response to the death of these two sons. Because David knew that his infant son was going to heaven. And he even says he would go to him when he died. But he also knew that Absalom was not saved. He was not going to heaven. So his rebellion against David uh, is a reflection of Absalom's rebellion against God. He was condemned. Uh, and he bore his own punishment for his rebellion. David's grief was for Absalom's eternal soul. He knew that he would not, he knew he would see his infant son again, but he would never see Absalom again. So, not strictly related to our passage here, but illustrative of God's grace in salvation. Uh, David uh, 
talks about God's grace in lots of different places in the Psalms as well. Just a couple of examples. Uh, Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Again, in Psalm 103, 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Uh, So David clearly understood the concept of grace and the greatness of God's salvation. Uh, Of course, as we already mentioned, the authors of the major and minor prophets also understood grace as well. Just a couple of references. Isaiah 30 and verse 18. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. Verse 19, O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And then uh, Jonah, chapter 4 and verse 2, For I knew, this is uh, talking about how Jonah had the kind of a bad attitude about God sparing the city of Nineveh. Uh, For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. So if nothing else, Jonah was familiar with Psalm 103, a direct quote there. But these are the prophets, they understood the concept of grace. Which brings us back to uh, 1 Peter 1 and verse 10. Uh, These prophets made careful searches and inquiries into this grace into salvation. Uh, this is not just a Google search. This is uh, these prophets really wanted to know. Uh, the Greek word here indicates diligence, an almost desperate desire to understand something, to examine in great detail. So it kind of begs the question: What? Where did they search? Ultimately, the only place they could search was their own writings. Uh, of course, the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, has the history of mankind and the nation of Israel from creation to the Exodus. And that's the penitent is full of examples of God's grace toward man. Even starting with Adam, God displayed his grace by not uh, destroying Adam and Eve at the very instant of their rebellion, which he would have been justified to do that as well. Uh, but grace has been part of God's sovereign plan from the, before the foundation of the world. And he never hesitates to display his grace toward men. Uh, we already mentioned about Noah finding favor and grace in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, Matthew 13 and 17 uh, talks about some of these uh, prophets, the, the men of old. Uh, when, he, when Jesus is telling his disciples why he uses parables in his teaching, he made this statement. Matthew 13, 17, For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. So they were granted some vision. Those who actually wrote down the books of the Old Testament, as we're told in Second Peter one twenty one, were moved by the Holy Spirit to give God's word to us. Uh, David understood this. Second uh, Samuel twenty three two he says, "The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue." So he knew that he was being inspired by the Spirit of God to write down what uh, what he wrote. But even so, they were not given 
the same level of understanding of the concept of grace, the fullness of grace, that we have, because we have all of Scripture. We have the New Testament to add to that. Uh, These Old Testament uh, authors, the prophets, they were looking forward to the cross, uh, and they wrote what the Spirit revealed to them, but they had no idea of the timeline of God's redemptive history. And, And even their messianic prophecies did not clearly distinguish between the first and the second comings of Christ. They prophesied about his first coming, that he would be born of a virgin, he would live as a human, yet still perfect, to leave us an example that we should follow in his steps, that he would die as the suffering servant. So they wrote about that. But uh, their vision uh, of Christ, of the Messiah, did not take into account this present age in which we're living, the church age. So they prophesied about his first coming. They also prophesied about his second coming when he comes in judgment uh, and in glory as the conquering king, but that's still in our future as well. So the prophets even admitted that they didn't understand completely. They did not have the big picture, the full picture. Daniel, uh, for example, he's given fairly detailed information concerning prophecy, concerning future events. Uh, talks about the 62 weeks and then the seven weeks and then a week, uh, a time and times and half a time. So a lot of details, but in uh, Daniel 12 and verse 8, at the, near the end of the book, he says, As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He's talking to the angel who was uh, explaining, who's giving him this prophecy. Um, What will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. So God was telling Daniel he wasn't supposed to understand it at that time. But those who need to understand will be given insight when they need it in accordance with God's sovereign plan in his perfect timing. So the prophets were faithful in recording what God directed them to write down, but they did so with imperfect, incomplete knowledge on a personal level. Uh, We talked a little bit about uh, this uh, in uh, men's ministry on Monday night. Uh, Again, shameless plug, every second and fourth Mondays, if you're a man, in this room, 7 p.m., put that out there. Um, the author of the book we're looking at, um, is Kevin Zuber, calls this prophetic foreshortening. This is when a prophet depicts two future events as one event in their view, but later revelation and fulfillment reveals that they are actually two separate events. Uh, the classic example here is uh, Zechariah 9. Verses 9 and 10. Again, we looked at this in men's ministry. Uh, Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. So, 
clearly, clearly from our perspective, uh, in verse 9, we see the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, the beginning of the Passion Week, which is recorded in all four Gospels in the New Testament. But what we know now, because of that, is recorded, but what Zechariah had no way of knowing is that verse 10 describes events that are separate from that event uh, that are yet to be fulfilled even for us. But uh, it talks about, you know, he will be the bow of war cut off. He will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea. All that is in our future as well. But we can have absolute confidence that because this first part of the prophecy was completely fulfilled in a literal sense, that the second part of that prophecy will also be fulfilled uh, just as literally in God's sovereign timing according to his uh, plan. So that's what, uh, all that is what they were uh, making careful searches and inquiries. Verse 11, seeking to know. Uh, This is the root word of the word that's used in verse 10 for inquiries. Again, diligently searching, investigate thoroughly to really find out information. And what were they so desperately wanting to know? Where it tells us here in the rest of verse 11, uh, depending on which English translation you're using, you can get some different verbiage there, different options. The New American Standard and the Extra Simple Version, excuse me, the English Standard Version, both say what person or time the Spirit of Christ within you was indicating, within them was indicating. So person or time. The New King James Version has what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them was indicating. Uh, Legacy Standard Bible translates it as what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. Well, the uh, Christian standard says what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. So lots of different translations, lots of different words um, might make it sound a little problematic in uh, figuring out what Peter was trying to say. But when you take a look at the context, even with the different words, uh, I think it becomes clearer. At least I hope so. Because one phrase that all of these English translations have in common, the Spirit of Christ within them. That's what it comes down to. This is the Holy Spirit clearly indwelling, again talking about the Old Testament prophets, for the specific purpose of inspiring the written Word of God. Again, this, okay, going back to our uh, main theme, the greatness of salvation, this is the second objective observer. Uh, remember the first were the prophets, the second observer testifying here to the greatness of our salvation is the Holy Spirit, the second observer. Peter repeats the truth of the Holy Spirit's work in the writing of Scripture in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. We already talked about this briefly earlier. Um, I'd like to quote the King James Version of these verses uh, just because it's what I originally memorized this passage in uh, a few years ago. Second uh, Peter 1, 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. New American Standard puts it this way. Verse 21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We see the same thing in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired, breathed out by God. So we must never forget that the entire Bible 
Old and New Testament, the entire Bible is truly and completely the Word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit. He is the author of this book. So, back to verse 11. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that all Christians experience, all Christians enjoy, uh, the prophets really wanted to know what time, what manner of time, what person, what circumstances, whatever, whatever they were being inspired to write about. They were transcribing the words uh, but as we've already n- discussed, they didn't have the, the big picture, the full picture. They wanted to know more. They searched diligently to understand as much as they could, given the information they had in the scriptures that were previously written, as well as the prophecies they were making themselves. But, uh, and it all fits together, but the Old Testament is really completed by the New Testament. Now, um, people can be saved by reading the Old Testament, uh, multitudes of Old Testament saints are proof of that. It's sufficient for those who believe God in faith. The Old Testament is, as Hebrews eleven thirteen states, all these, the Old Testament saints, died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. And verses 39 and 40 of that same chapter, all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. The Old Testament saints knew about grace, they knew about salvation, but their knowledge was incomplete, imperfect, because they were looking forward both to the cross and to the kingdom. Again to verse 11 of 1 Peter 1, seeking to know the person, circumstances, the manner, the time, really any knowledge they could possibly acquire regarding what they are being inspired to write about, what the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So there we have it. The sufferings and the glories. The cross and the kingdom. The prophets, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, wanted to know more about who they were writing about, what time he was coming, the circumstances surrounding when he would come, uh, the person, the time, the circumstances, it, but it wasn't theirs to know at that time. They saw his future sufferings. Isaiah 53 is probably the best example of that, most familiar. But uh, many, of the, excuse me, many of the prophets were shown this, uh, as in uh, Zechariah 13, 7. It's one that uh, Christ himself quoted. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. But they also saw his future glory. In uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 and 11. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people. So God will bring that glory to himself through the person of Christ. So the prophets saw the suffering and they saw the glory but they didn't see the time separating those two events. That's that prophetic foreshortening we talked about earlier. But, however, as we move on to verse 12, we're told they were not kept completely in the dark. It says, verse 12, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. So the Holy Spirit let the writers of the Old Testament know that their prophecies would be beneficial for future generations, for us. 
This had to have been some consolation to these faithful men of God. They couldn't grasp the entirety of what they were writing about, but they knew that someday people would come along who had more information, they could get a better understanding of the big picture, and the salvation they had, because they believed God in faith, would be the same glorious salvation that those future generations that we would have, that we do have, because they knew, because we know, that Jesus Christ is the one they were predicting. He is the one who would suffer, the one who would be buried in the borrowed tomb of a rich man, the one who would rise from that tomb victorious over death, and the one who sits now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, the one who indeed will come again to rule in glory on the earth. These are the things they prophesied with limited knowledge for our benefit. Continuing on in verse 12, they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, uh, announced to you through those who preach the gospel. Here we have the third objective observer verifying and validating the greatness of salvation. These are the apostles, the Lord's disciples, uh, those who preach the gospel, establishing the church, the body of Christ in the world. Paul is one of these. He explains his role in this process in Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 10. To me, the least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery Mystery for which ages, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That mystery—that's the mystery that the New, that the Old Testament prophets had incomplete knowledge of. It was a mystery to them, but it has been revealed to us through the New Testament, through these apostles, the, the authors of the New Testament. Paul, for example, Peter, another of them, obviously, uh, as well as all of those who preach the gospel to you. Uh, While in the immediate context, this is obviously referring to the authors, the writers of the New Testament, uh, who wrote under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as we've already seen, I think it's not too much of a stretch to expand this to uh, those who, down through the years and across the centuries, have continued to preach the gospel, the true gospel of Christ, the gospel that results in salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Those are the the pastors, the evangelists, uh, the teachers, uh, the faithful believers who understand what it means to give an account, a reason for the hope that is in them, the hope that is in us. When we witness to friends, to loved ones, to strangers on the street, we are preaching the gospel. So uh, that's something that we can take to heart and be an encouragement for us. But, of course, we said the context here in our, uh, our passage uh, focuses on the apostles. But, uh, again, it emphasizes, again, the, the critical role of the Holy Spirit, without whom there would be no written word of God, right? Back to verse 12. The Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The gospel, preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Again, uh, sent from heaven, the Holy Spirit. This is the same assurance 
that Jesus gave his disciples, including Peter, in the upper room discourse we've been looking at in our Sunday morning worship. Uh, John fourteen sixteen. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. John fourteen twenty six. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will, will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Again, John sixteen seven. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the, whole, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So promise after promise that the Holy Spirit would be sent from heaven. Of course, we see that fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4 at Pentecost. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, the beginning of the church. And we have the enduring evidence of that fulfillment in our own lives. Uh, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God in every believer. So this is another aspect of the greatness of our salvation we can see in these verses as testified to by the New Testament authors, the apostles. Uh, Finally, the fourth objective observer to the greatness of salvation is found at the end of verse 12. Things into which angels long to look. So the tremendous interest that the angels have in salvation is another verification and validation as to its greatness, the greatness of salvation. Now, as interesting as angelology, the study of angels, is, it's really beyond the scope of this Sunday school lesson, uh, but we know, we know that God's plan of salvation is for men, not for angels, not for animals, not for any other created things. Only man, according to Scripture, is made in the image of God. Only human beings have a soul that can repent and turn away from sin, receive the salvation provided through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. God's plan of salvation established before time began in eternity past as the highest display of His sovereignty and grace and for His glory. Now the phrase, long to look, is kind of interesting. Uh, just to break that down a little bit to understand it a little better. The word long or desire, depending on which translation, the Greek word for that is epithumeo, just kind of fun to say. Uh, it's an interesting word translated here, like we said, to long for, to desire, in an active sense. Uh, the same word is used in 1 Timothy 3.1, among other places. Uh, it is a ma- If a man aspires to the office of overseer, overseer it is a fine work he desires to do, epithumeo, desire. But the same word, epithumeo, is translated lust in several places in the New Testament. Uh, for example, Jesus used that same word in Matthew 5.28 uh, as he's clarifying the sin of adultery, the definition of adultery, when he says, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her, epithumeo, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the same word, can have either a positive or a negative connotation, depending on the, con- on the context. Obviously, the desire that the angels have here to look into salvation is a positive thing. It's, but uh, the emphasis here is on the urgency. You could say a desperate desire. They really are interested. It's, it's uh, important to them. But a desire to do what? It says they long to look. That's an interesting word too, look. Prakupto. 
really means to stoop down, to look into something. Uh, the gospel writers Luke and John both used this uh, to describe what Peter, John, and Mary Magdalene did when they got to the tomb, the empty tomb of Christ. They stooped down to get a better look. It's like, uh, for example, you're on a walk, you're on a hike, you see something interesting along your way. You're going to stop, you're going to bend down, you're going to focus on, take a better look on whatever you find interesting. You're going to take time to investigate whatever is important to you. That's what the angels are longing to do, longing to look into, to investigate. Uh, This verse tells us they are fascinated by God's plan for human salvation. It's not difficult to understand why that is. The role of angels is clearly explained in Scripture. They serve God as messengers of judgment. They give Him praise, and they reveal significant developments in the progress of God's program for humanity. For example, uh, angels are the ones that uh, came to Daniel to give him the prophecies. Angels came to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 to uh, tell him it's okay that Mary's pregnant, right? Um, This is the son of God that she's carrying. Uh, Angels came to both Zechariah and Mary in Luke chapter 1. Angels are called ministering spirits, so this indicates their role as servants of God. Jesus talked about angels many times throughout the Gospels. And, of course, we know, very familiar with uh, their ser- the service of the angels to Christ, both before His uh, birth, uh, at His incarnation, they were right there uh, with the shepherds, and uh, then throughout His ministry, throughout His incarnation, His life here on earth, they ministered to Him, for example, at uh, uh, after his temptation by Satan in the wilderness. Um, so, and Matthew twenty five thirty one also tells us that at his second coming that Jesus will be accompanied by angels. But uh, for the most part, generally speaking, uh, in Scripture, angels, uh, the references to angels describe them as rejoicing and praising God. It says uh, Luke 15, 10, for example, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. So their prime directive, if you will, is to give glory to God. And the angels have the intelligence to understand that his plan of salvation, God's plan of salvation, is how he brings the greatest glory to himself through his son. So they have this, because they want to glorify God, they have this longing desire to understand what it means to be saved. They realize that only those who have experienced God's genuine salvation can truly rejoice and glorify Him for it. So we have, we're in the best, as humans, as saved individuals, we're in the best possible position to glorify God as His children. And that's a position that angels will never have. That should be motivation for us to glorify, to rejoice, to glorify God for the greatness of his salvation. I'd like to close now with uh, there was a gospel songwriter back in the uh, late 19th and early 20th, early 20th century by the name of Johnson Oatman Jr. Uh, he wrote the words to, among others, Count Your Blessings and Higher Ground, um, neither of which are in the new hymnal, but we're not going to dwell on that too much. Um, but he also wrote a song titled Holy, Holy is what the angels sing. It's not real familiar these days, but uh, I heard it 
a long time ago, and I've, uh, I'm not going to, we're not going to focus too much on the theological accuracy, but I just want to, uh, I want you to listen to some of the words, the, the first verse and then the re- refrain. Uh, there is singing up in heaven, such as we have never known, where the angels sing the praises of the Lamb upon the throne. Their sweet harps are ever tuneful, and their voices always clear. Oh, that we might be more like them while we serve the Master here. And then the refrain, holy, holy is what the angels sing, and I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing redemption's story, they will fold their wings. For angels never felt the joys that our salvation brings. Something to think about. Things into which angels long to look. So, in conclusion, we've seen the work of the Old Testament prophets, the Holy Spirit, the New Testament apostles, and the angels, all giving testimony, verifying and validating to the greatness of the salvation we have by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. May we never lose sight of this, all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to, uh, to look into your word. Uh, I pray that you would use the, uh, the feeble efforts of, uh, that I've made to help uh, your people understand somewhat, however, uh, your spirit guides to understand what it means to have salvation, to understand exactly the price that was paid, how we should glorify you for what you've given us in our salvation, what it means to live eternally with you, to have your spirit indwelling us, to bring us more, uh, bring us closer to you, to make us more and more like Christ every day. Pray that you would direct the uh, discussion uh, to follow, that uh, you'd be glorified in all that is said and done. We pray your blessing on each person here. Again, do your work according to your will and your timing. In each person here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.